This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Tonight, a late switch in the Prime Minister's campaign strategy, promising to jettison a bulldozer approach and change if he's re-elected. We'll assess Scott Morrison's new pitch to voters with political journalist Karen Middleton. The strain is starting to show and some of his colleagues are critical about him and his role uh, and the fact that his personality or his leadership style appears now to be being a bit of a drag on the coalition vote. And funding for the Great Barrier Reef is back in the political spotlight, but local tourism operators are sceptical as both major parties continue to support fossil fuels. At the same time as they give funding to help us sustain, preserve, look after the Great Barrier Reef, they're also giving the green light to new coal mines going ahead. With just eight days to go until voters decide his political future, the Prime Minister Scott Morrison has declared he will change his style if he wins the election. It's a shift in tactics for the Liberal leader, who says he's been a bit of a bulldozer during the hard years of the pandemic, but better times are ahead. The Prime Minister's opponents, though, say it's too late to start changing now. David Sparks has more. Scott Morrison raised a few eyebrows today when he told reporters now is the time for change. He's not talking about a change of government. He says it's his personal style that will change after the election on May 21st. Over the last three years and particularly the last two, what have Australians have needed from me going through this pandemic has been strength and resilience. Now, I admit that hasn't enabled Australians to see a lot of other gears in the way I work. And I know Australians know that I can be a bit of a bulldozer when it comes to issues, and I suspect you guys know that too. He argues that bulldozer style was a necessity given the challenges confronting the nation. But he's telling voters his style will shift gears if they give him another chance. Because as we go into this next period, on the other side of this election, I know there are things that are going to have to change with the way I do things. Because we're moving into a different time. We're moving into a time of opportunity and working from the strong platform of strength that we've built and and saved in our economy in these last three years, we can now take advantage of those opportunities in the future. Resilience and strength is what we've needed and that will continue to be needed. But it's also about ensuring that now the dividend of what we've done gets to fix those problems in aged care, gets to ensure that we're supporting people with disabilities, that we're investing in the hospitals and the schools. The Prime Minister's I Can Change pitch did not impress opposition leader Anthony Albanese. Scott Morrison has today said he's a bulldozer. That is, a bulldozer wrecks things. A bulldozer knocks things over. I'm a builder. That's what I am. And if I'm elected Prime Minister, I'll build things in this country. I'll build better infrastructure. I'll build a response to climate change that, in partnership uh, with our allies, including the Biden administration, I'll build the skills capacity of this nation up. I'll build people's living standards up as well. Mr Albanese rejected Mr Morrison's claim that he's about to change. And what he's saying is, if you vote for Scott Morrison, I'll change. That's what he's saying. Vote for me and I'll change. Well, if you want change, change the government. 
change the government. Scott Morrison's sudden declaration in the midst of an election campaign that he's ready to change conjures memories of another mid-campaign shift in 2010. As then Prime Minister Julia Gillard fought a strong challenge from opposition leader Tony Abbott, she announced out of the blue that she'd be ditching the strategies of her media minders and instead present a truer picture of her personality. Whilst that campaign has given people glimpses of the real Julia Gillard, I've stepped up to take control to make sure that in this campaign I'm out and about uh, talking to the Australian people about the things that matter to them for this nation's future. In that example, Prime Minister Gillard did manage to win enough seats to form a minority government. Today, Scott Morrison was campaigning in the ultra-marginal electorate of Chisholm in Melbourne's eastern suburbs, where he announced $300 million of funding to bolster supply chains for advanced manufacturing. And while it's been a campaign of carefully stage-managed events for the PM, there was one very unexpected visitor. What's your name? Supreme Leader. A man with an uncanny resemblance to North Korean leader Kim Jong-un caught everyone off guard. Despite his claim to high office, like many members of the public, he too wasn't able to get anywhere near the Prime Minister. You can call me the leader. Who I am, I'm Kim Jong. Someone's pretty obvious. David Sparks with that report. Karen Middleton is the chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper. She told me the Prime Minister's pledge is an admission his style isn't going over well with voters. He would have been hoping that by now he was in a much better position than he clearly is. And I think the strain is starting to show. And some of his colleagues are critical about him and his role uh, and the fact that he's personality or his leadership style appears now to be being a bit of a drag on the coalition vote and he's addressing that directly. Mr Morrison has said he's sort of had to be a bit of a a bulldozer during the pandemic but was he a bit of a bulldozer before the pandemic? (laughs) <laughs> well, really, it, it, it's a personality trait. Um, it can be seen as a virtue, you know, strengths and a bit of bombast, taking charge. He certainly takes charge at news conferences, bats away press conference questions, and that for a long time was seen as a, a political virtue. But to, if it turns into a, a negative and not a plus, then it becomes problematic. And now he's he's trying to make it a strength by saying, you know, it, it represents strength as opposed to weakness but if people are seeing it in a different light that that's that's difficult for him. Scott Morrison's been in office for four years do you think the voters are going to buy an undertaking to change his style? Well, this is the other difficulty of making this undertaking so late in the piece. They have got to know him now. In 2019, he was relatively new. He'd been around. He'd been Treasurer. He'd been Immigration Minister, Social Services Minister. But he was a new Prime Minister who'd been unexpected when he came up through the middle in that contest between Malcolm Turnbull and Peter Dutton. And he used that to his advantage. He campaigned very well. He he crafted an image and presented an image of the daggy dad, the knockabout bloke the guy who was here in your interests, enough people accepted that and endorsed that, that he was re-elected or elected. They've had four years now to size up Scott Morrison. They have worked out what he's like, who he is. Many people still support him. Other people do not. But it's difficult to then turn around late in the piece and say, all those things you've you've you know seen from me, uh, I'm going to change some of them now because some of you say you don't like them. I think that's a that's a difficult message to be trying to convey with one week to go. 
if he does manage to pull off another victory, do you think he'd actually be able to change his style? Well, that's an excellent question. I don't think I can answer that one. But but it's interesting that he's feeling he needs to give an undertaking to that degree. It's not easy for any of us to change our personality traits, our characteristics, the things that we're known by. It takes a lot of work and a lot of effort. So it, it would be hard, I think, to change what is a natural personality thing. It does sort of start to smack a bit of the real Julia and all the <laughs> reassurances we had in other elections where, okay, you haven't seen the real me but now you will or maybe you have seen the real me but now you'll see a different one. It it hasn't been effective in the past but maybe it'll be different this time. I looked up Julia Gillard's comments back in 2010 that she was going to show the electorate the real Julia but that was only two weeks into the campaign. Is it significant that Mr Morrison is making this admission and this promise to change style just a week out from the polls? Look, what happens in the last two weeks is that everything gets very willing and very focused because people are already voting. So they are messaging, the the major parties are messaging to the voters in real time. People are hearing their messages as they're heading to the polling booth and getting their pencils out ready to mark those ballot papers. And so the messages have to become very fine-tuned and the reality of the trend, whether it's for or against either party, becomes very clear and you can start to see in the in the demeanour of candidates, in the schedules that they follow, how much work they're doing, how fast they're moving, where they are going, which ones are under pressure and which ones aren't. And I think from that, at the moment, we can see that the coalition is looking more under pressure than Labor. And that's why you're starting to see them really trying to jettison the baggage, if you like, the baggage about China, baggage about Mr Morrison's personality and, and reassurances that they are worthy of re-election. Karen Middleton, the Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper. The Australian military is tracking a Chinese spy ship off the west coast of Australia, close to a top-secret naval communications base. The Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, has labelled its actions aggressive and says it's very unusual for the vessel to come so far south and hug the WA coastline. Our foreign affairs reporter, Stephen Jedgetts, has the story. Stephen, how close did this ship actually get to Australian shores? Well, according to the Defence Department, the closest it came was approximately 50 nautical miles. So as the crow flies, that's, you know, a fairly substantial distance. But it is also well and truly within Australia's exclusive economic zone and also well and truly close enough to engage in signals intelligence. In other words, monitoring uh, what might be happening at defence installations in Australia uh, or off the Australian coast. It's not, however, within the 12 nautical miles that's used for Australia's territorial waters. Crossing that threshold would send a much more serious signal again about uh, Chinese intent. Now, what was it doing there? It's difficult to be absolutely certain, but the government's assessment and assumption is that it was engaging in intelligence collection. And in particular, it's possible that it was monitoring signals out of the Harold E. Holt Naval Station uh, near Exmouth on the West Australian coast. That is 
is a pretty secure and fairly secretive naval communications station that's run by both the United States and Australia. Its purpose is to support not just Australian uh, submarines, but also US and other allied submarines in the region. So it's very plausible that it was doing that and that it was tracking quite closely to the Australian coast precisely for that purpose. Now, the Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, says that it's unusual to see a Chinese spy ship both travel so far south, but also unusual to see it, as he puts it, hugging the coast so closely. And he's labelled it an aggressive act. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. I think I think it is uh, an aggressive act, and I think particularly because uh, it has come so far south. For it to come south of Exmouth is without precedent, and for it to hug the coastline the way in which it has uh, and heading up toward uh, the north. Now, we don't know whether it deviates uh, and goes you know, directly north, but at the moment it's heading uh, in a northeasterly direction. Stephen, how do you think we should interpret the timing of the appearance of this ship and, and also the timing of the government's announcement? Yeah, well, they're two separate but related questions. Uh, In terms of the Chinese Navy's decision to send it down, it is only a week out from the election and the Defence Minister and other government sources are implying there's a very deliberate bit of signalling here from China, a uh, a desire to signal its contempt towards the Australian political uh, process and to try and intimidate the government or at least the Australian people in the lead up to the election. Then there's also, of course, the question of the government's decision to reveal the fact it's been tracking this, uh, this spy ship. It's been doing this for the last week. Uh, The Defence Minister was asked during that press conference, is this a deliberate attempt to to leak this information to try and intimidate voters and to try and encourage them uh, to vote for the uh, coalition, uh, to stick with the horse that that they know? But the Defence Minister dismissed that. He pointed out during recent confrontations between the Chinese Navy and Australian spy plane, the government was also quick to disclose that. So he's saying that's a deliberate pattern of uh, transparency that the government's engaging in, rather than anything aimed at the federal election. The ABC's foreign affairs reporter Stephen Jedgetts. The future of the Great Barrier Reef is back as an issue this election, with Labor committing a further $194 million over four years to preserve the natural wonder. Both parties have now committed $1 billion to the reef over the next decade, but policy experts and tourism operators are sceptical of the political announcements. They say both parties aren't doing enough to fix the underlying cause of coral bleaching, climate change. John Daly reports. The government's own reef agencies report the Great Barrier Reef is experiencing the warmest water temperature since 1900. It's leading to the fourth mass bleaching event in seven years. The dire conditions deeply concern Airlie Beach tourism operator Jan Claxton. I feel absolutely sick to the stomach. I mean, you can imagine our whole family um, have been involved in the business for 24 years here. We also have a business up in Cape Tribulation. But bigger than that, much bigger than that, is the environment. And it is our biggest issue. And for some reason, it seems like the politicians are are putting it last on their list. In Cairns, the Labor leader, Anthony Albanese, has announced almost $200 million in extra funding for reef programs over the next four years. It'll be spent on measures like reducing plastic pollution, helping farmers use less fertiliser and installing water quality sensors. It brings Federal Labor's total reef funding package to $1.2 billion by the end of the decade. The Coalition made a similar announcement in the pre-election budget, pledging $1 billion over the next nine years for reef management and research, control of crown of thorn starfish and land management improvements. James Cook University political scientist Maxine Newlands says $1 billion pledges 
make good headlines, but the money spread out over almost a decade is nowhere near enough. It is a big statement in both cases, but it's not a, a huge amount of money compared to what's required. Dr Maxine Newlands says the elephant in the room here is climate change, the root cause of coral bleaching. The LNP has long supported continuing on with the production of coal and gas, and Labor has this election walked back on its opposition to new coal and gas projects. Back in Airlie Beach, Jan Claxton says it's hard to take either side seriously on reef protection. At the same time as they give funding to help us sustain, preserve, or look after the Great Barrier Reef, they're also giving the green light to new coal mines going ahead. Surely you would start looking at the issues and the causes and trying to manage those um, before, you know, spending a lot of money on on the result and trying to clean up the result. Early Beach is in the safe LNP seat of Dawson, where climate and reef politics loom large. The communities along this coastline rely on both tourism and coal mining for jobs. South of Ely Beach, the reefside mining city of Mackay is a case in point. Mark Ahern owns a local seafood business and relies on healthy fish stocks, but he says coal and the Great Barrier Reef can coexist. It's just the way it is. We've got to have both. You know, we've just had coming out of two years of pandemic, and if we hadn't had coal and we hadn't had iron ore and gas and that sort of stuff, man, this country would be, you know, we'd be a third world country and we're not. The way it sounds a lot of time in the media is that, you know, the reef's buggered, but look, that's not the case. The reef is in great shape. The Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority says otherwise. Its latest report found more than 90% of surveyed coral reefs suffered from some form of bleaching this summer. John Daly reporting. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead, experts plead with Australians to take COVID seriously and reduce transmission as another 52 people are reported to have died. The discovery of a massive cocaine shipment hidden on a bulk carrier in Newcastle has revealed a sophisticated drug trafficking operation targeting Australia's ports. Labor has slammed the incident as a sign that personnel cuts to security and port policing are making our borders vulnerable to organised crime, a claim the Federal Minister for Home Affairs has vehemently denied. But trafficking experts say more officers at our ports might not be the answer and law enforcement needs to be smarter to stop these illicit drug routes. Priyanka Srinivasan with this report. A washed-up body in the port of Newcastle was the first sign of a drug smuggling operation gone wrong. The diver was found dead on Monday next to a bag with 50 kilos of cocaine, a fraction of the suspected 300 kilos he was trying to collect. The drugs were believed to be strapped to the hull of a cargo ship from Argentina, Federal Labor member for Newcastle, Sharon Clayden, links the smuggling attempt to Australian border force cuts. She says the number of ABF officers patrolling the city has gone from 10 to 6. It's a claim that Minister for Home Affairs, Karen Andrews, flatly denied. Neil Fergus from Intelligent Risks, an international management services consultancy, says criticism of Australia's border enforcement isn't fair. We have in this country a very good system of port security. Not perfect, but very good. But there will always be people trying to find ways to circumvent the rules with things like this most clandestine uh, shipment that was detected in Newcastle 
only because the scuba diver expired while trying to recover the drug. He says the key to defending ports from drug smugglers is information gathering from international counterparts. Putting more people, more cameras around ports is not necessarily going to achieve the objective because what these criminal syndicates do is identify the countermeasures that they have to try to defeat or swing around. Jade Lindley, a transnational organised crime expert from the University of Western Australia, agrees. She says the case in Newcastle is not unusual and reveals the difficulties in monitoring Australia's maritime border. We have so many avenues of entry into into Australia and the reality is it's just not possible to rigorously uh, control all of them. Meanwhile, researchers at the National Drug and Alcohol Research Centre have found cocaine use and access in communities has increased in recent years. Dr Rachel Sutherland says that could be linked to a ramp up in drug trafficking, but it's difficult to know for sure. We did look at number of number and weight of seizures um, nationally in Australia, and they did find that generally speaking, those kind of seizures have been kind of um, increasing over time as well. Uh, which would kind of support this idea of kind of increased um, availability or expansion of the cocaine market in Australia, whether that's kind of directly attributable to kind of increases in, in cocaine use or harms is kind of much more kind of difficult to say. But despite the tragedy in Newcastle, there is a silver lining, according to Dr Lindley from the University of Western Australia. Because of border control, just not being possible to inspect every single vessel, every single cargo, you know, these things do slip through. The wonderful news, though, is that this did get found uh, and so the border uh, force will be Uh, looking for these kinds of cases uh, going forward. So it's actually a really positive uh, outcome going forward. Jade Lindley, a transnational organised crime expert from the University of Western Australia. Priyanka Srinivasan reporting. Well, at the start of the pandemic, we tuned in to press conferences every day, waiting with dread to find out how many people had COVID. Now those numbers barely get a mention, but people are dying every day. And experts are pleading with Australians to change their mindset, warning the COVID death toll is extraordinary. Isabel Masali reports. Western Australia has the nation's highest COVID vaccination rate. But lately, it's also been leading the country in daily COVID case numbers. The state has recorded more than 15,000 cases for the third day running. And WA's Chief Health Officer, Dr Andy Robertson, admits it could climb higher. So what we're anticipating is that we will continue to see rises over the the next couple of weeks and that that we will probably get over the 20,000, between 20 and 25,000. Um, in the next couple of weeks. We anticipate that we will then start to, the, the numbers will start to fall after that. The Australian Medical Association and the Nursing Federation have been pleading for a reintroduction of mask rules in WA over concerns hospitals won't cope. They certainly work and, and certain, we'd strongly encourage people to consider wearing masks, but they are having a lot less impact than they have had in the past. Um, and what we're seeing is that... Uh, we are able to manage this outbreak. We're trying to get that balance between um, living um, you know, with COVID and also dealing with the outbreaks. Peter Allerley is the WA faculty chair of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. I asked him about the current situation in WA's hospitals. 
I think we've one of the things that we've been really um, pleasantly surprised at over the last few months is the case numbers in the community, impressive as they may be, haven't translated into um, hordes of people arriving in the emergency departments. But he says hospitals are under pressure, with many healthcare workers at home with COVID. And that manifests itself in that patients who otherwise normally would have gone upstairs into a main ward are stuck in the emergency department for for, for very protracted um, periods. Every emergency department in the metropolitan area has multiple people spending more than 24 hours in emergency departments every day at the moment. The strain on the healthcare system can be seen across the country, and it's something Professor Brendan Crabb believes isn't getting enough attention. He's the director of the Burnett Institute. At the moment in Australia, we have an extraordinarily high death rate. We had 50 or so deaths just today. We're sitting on a seven-day average of about 40 deaths a day. It's somewhere in the vicinity of a 10% increase in our all-cause mortality. And, and this is what's looking like the trend for the rest of the year and potentially beyond. We just never tolerate deaths of that magnitude. We never tolerate it. Um, so it's a, it's a rather shocking circumstance at the moment. The death toll that I think is going under the radar to most Australians. To those who uh, live and breathe public health as I do, it's jaw-dropping. Professor Crabb says Australia has a mindset issue where the pandemic is largely being ignored. He stresses attitudes must change because COVID case numbers do matter. We think doing something about it is going back to the draconian measures of 2020, um, going back to, to lockdown. And nothing could be further from the truth. That's the good news. You know, we have several tools which are not onerous on uh, society, on the way we live our lives, which if properly implemented and properly trumpeted from the Prime Minister to the Premiers to the Chief Ministers down, could make a very big difference. So what can we be doing to bring down COVID cases, hospitalisations and deaths? We could get our vaccination rates up, our third dose and our fourth dose for those who are eligible, get our kids vaccinated for those who are eligible. We're still way too low. And then there are two other really important mitigations. The first is to take the quality of the air we breathe really seriously. And we have ways of providing clean air through ventilation, through filtration and so on. And if we can't provide clean air, we know how to wear a high-quality mask and encourage people to do that. And the final way is testing. Professor Brendan Crabb from the Burnett Institute. Isabel Masali with that report. Well, a day after North Korea admitted COVID has entered the country, the reclusive country's health officials now say 350,000 people are infected there. The outbreak's been described on state media as a severe national emergency. North Korea hasn't undertaken a mass vaccination program and the country's health system is already severely lacking. Rachel Mealy reports. North Korean state television shows leader Kim Jong-un wearing a face mask for the first time. The leader enters a boardroom and addresses members of his ruling party. The voiceover says he's ordered localised lockdowns across the country. So far, North Korea has announced six COVID-related deaths, but analysts believe that's an understatement. Sarah Davies is a professor of international relations 
relations at Griffith University. All of this is indicating that this outbreak could be quite widespread and it, and it really could you know, um, have a serious impact on their already fragile health system, a population that has not, I think it's, we can be confident, has not had a lot of exposure to this virus. So I think those six deaths might tragically be, be the tip of the iceberg. But just hours after admitting frailty, North Korea fired three short-range ballistic missiles into the Sea of Japan. North Korea analysts are trying to figure out what that could mean. Some say missile tests are done to raise morale within the country. But Professor Davies says she's also seen speculation suggesting the North might be ready to ask the West for help with vaccines. But I have seen speculation that, that this is not a coincidence that perhaps there is a relationship here between the announcement of the COVID outbreak and then the missile testing and that this might be an effort to try and demonstrate there's fragility and and at the same time capability. This week saw the inauguration of South Korea's new president Yoon Sok-yul who's promising to deal with the threat posed by Kim Jong-un's regime while leaving open the door to dialogue. Professor Davies says helping North Korea deliver vaccines to its people would be a good way to get started. There's been talk about the door to dialogue being open and then within a couple of days, you know, we've had these two quite different reactions from North Korea to that speech. So we could look at it in that context as well. Is this North Korea's way of saying that they want to have a dialogue with, with South Korea? Um, I'm not sure, but, but there does seem to be a couple of events all going on in the last couple of days that that requires us to sit and try and put it together and try and draw some meaning from it. Professor Sarah Davies from Griffith University ending that report from Rachel Mealy. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Scott Johnston. I'm Samantha Donovan. I'll be back with you on Monday evening. Don't forget you can catch Linda Mottram at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning and on the Listen app with This Week. Catching you up on the campaign heading into the final week and a close look at the deep disinformation campaign run by the Marcos family. I hope you have a great weekend. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Donald Trump lost to Joe Biden a year and a half ago, but the former president's hold on his Republican Party seems to be stronger than ever. Today, political analyst and author Jeffrey Cabaservice on what drives Donald Trump why the world should prepare for his return. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.